Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Welcome to episode 89 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. This will be the last episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast of 2023, back after a bit of a break for me on the 14th of January. This week has been another busy week. In fact, we've had a row of about four really busy weeks in terms of financial crime news. So I think I will just crack on with it as ever. I've linked the main stories in the podcast description. We'll start with this week's sanctions news, and there is a mountain of it. Starting in the United States, where the US Treasury Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC, has sanctioned a human smuggling and narcotics trafficking organization based along its southwest border near Sonora, Mexico, together with two individuals who are part of its support network. Homeland Security Investigations worked with OFAC to sanction key members of Malas Manas leadership and the organization itself to impede access to illicit proceeds from drug trafficking and human smuggling. The illicit proceeds generated by these activities caused instability in the region, promote corruption and fund the cartels to expand their operations and distribution networks as the press release provides. Link to it is in the podcast description. Now, a follow-up to a story which we covered in episodes 43 and 72 of the podcast concerning a former FBI agent who worked in the New York field office. Charles McGonagall was this week sentenced to 50 months imprisonment for, quotes, conspiring to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act and to commit money laundering in connection with his 2021 agreement to provide services to Oleg Deripaska, a sanctioned Russian oligarch. Link to that press release is in the podcast description. Now, on the subject of Russia and the sanctions imposed on individuals and entities allied to the country following its invasion of Ukraine, well, this week, Brian Nelson, who is the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, used a bank roundtable event taking place in Mumbai, India, to update on the US government's sanctions position respecting Russia. He remarked, The Treasury's top priorities are reducing Russian revenue and preventing sanctions evasion to disrupt Russia's ability to acquire goods that are used on the battlefield in Ukraine. We're deeply concerned by an increase in Russian procurement from third countries of key inputs and technologies directly supporting Russia's attempt to build a self-sufficient wartime economy. Combating Russian sanctions evasion and illicit procurement will increasingly implicate money laundering typologies, sanctions evasion and the circumvention of export control regimes. For financial institutions, addressing this is critical to mitigating regulatory and reputational risks. Frontline industry compliance is critical to efforts and critical to you that is the industry, from protecting their banks from sanctions exposure. Link to that 
Full presser is in the podcast description. Finally, from the US on sanctions this week, OFAC has also tightened the oil price cap, as you will see, has also occurred in the UK. The action is coordinated between the partner, nation, partner nations who are operating the price cap. These actions stem from the reaffirmed commitment made earlier this month by the G7, quotes, to tighten compliance and enforcement of the price cap policy on Russian oil, including by imposing sanctions on those engaged in deceptive practices and by updating compliance rules and regulations as necessary. The link to the OFAC press release is in the podcast description. Now, to the European Union, where Austria finally dropped its objection to the 12th round of sanctions against Russia following Ukraine's removal of Raiffeisen Bank from its blacklist. Several EU agencies were keen to announce the sanctions, but I've gone for the European Council's press release, which provides the neatest summary with bold font, and frankly I'm a sucker for a bold font. The EU is imposing a prohibition on the direct and indirect import, purchase or transfer of diamonds from Russia. A direct ban applies to non-industrial natural and synthetic diamonds as well as diamond jewellery as of the 1st of January 2024. Furthermore, an indirect import ban of Russian diamonds when processed, that is cut and or polished, in third countries including jewellery incorporating diamonds originating in Russia will be phased in progressively as of the 1st of March 2024 and will be completed by the 1st of September 2024. This phasing in of indirect import bans is justified by the need to deploy a traceability mechanism that enables effective enforcement measures and minimises disruptions for the EU market. The measure requires that EU exporters contractually prohibit re-exportation to Russia and re-exportation for use in Russia of particularly sensitive goods and technology when supplying, selling, transferring or exporting to a third country with the exception of partner countries. As it happens, the Council also added 29 new entities to the list of those directly supporting Russia's military and industrial complex in its war of aggression against Ukraine. They will be subject of tighter export restrictions concerning dual-use goods and technologies, as well as goods and technology which might contribute to the technological enhancement of Russia's defence and security sector. Some of these 29 entities belong to third countries involved in the circumvention of trade sanctions or are Russian entities involved in the development, production and supply of electronic components for Russia's military and industrial complex. The Council is introducing tighter compliance rules to support the implementation of the oil price cap and clamp down on circumvention. Furthermore, a strengthened information sharing mechanism will allow better identification of vessels and entities carrying out deceptive practices such as ship-to-ship -ship transfers used to conceal the origin of or destination of cargo and AIS manipulations while transporting Russian crude oil and petroleum products. I told you it was a belter of a press release. Links to the Council and Commission press releases can be found in the podcast description. And finally on sanctions from the EU this week, a story which went just under the line Roman Abramovich has lost the legal challenge which he brought against the European Union's imposition of sanctions on him following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
In the UK, well, there's been an awful lot of activity in the UK this week. Six entries have been amended on the consolidated list. The amendments are under the Iran and Russia sanctions regimes. Additionally, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has made a host of updates to licenses operating under the Russia sanctions regime. The full list is enormous. So, well, here we go. First, transactions related to agricultural commodities, including the provision of insurance and other services. Payments to utility companies for gas and electricity by UK-designated persons who own or rent properties in the UK. Payments to Companies House. Permitted payments to UK insurance companies. Charities and interim managers and trustees. Russia travel for UK nationals. Provision of navigational data to civilian aircrafts for flight safety. Prior obligations. LCIA payments. That's the... London Court of International Arbitration Payments, payments to water companies for water and sewage, legal services, emergency payments directly or via an intermediary to Belleronvigatia for air traffic services. Yeah, I'm guessing that pronunciation wasn't great, but I'll leave it. The final one is permitted payments to UK insurance companies also a number of changes have been made in relation to definitions and use. Links to the notice and the full updated list of licenses can be found in the podcast description. Just to add to the list of amended licenses later in the week, Offseen, this is not the Russian regime, this is Offseen, updated a license relating to humanitarian activity in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories to include the Disasters Emergency Committee as a relevant person for the purposes of the license. It also extended the license relating to Evraz PLC North American subsidiaries. Now, we've mentioned this before on the podcast. That license will now expire on the 30th of September 2024. Final thing was that there was clarification provided on the oil price cap guidance. That's because of the coordinated action by those nations which are enforcing the oil price cap on Russia. Now, the link to the consolidated list, the extension of the Evraz license, and updated guidance can be found in the podcast description. Actually, while we're about it, Offsi has also announced a series of sector-specific teach-ins for the updated oil price cap, which will take place in mid-January 2024. If you're interested in attending a teach-in, please contact oilpricecap.offsi at hmtreasury.gov.uk for additional details. Now, you must also state your sector or the sector in which you are interested. The final story from Offsi this week is news that it's published a blog post on its 2022-23 annual review, and you may remember that we mentioned it in last week's podcast. The link to the blog post is in the podcast description. Finally... Two more stories from the UK on sanctions, and then we can leave sanctions for a bit and move on to look at fraud. First, echoing the 12th package of EU sanctions against Russia, the UK government has announced that the Russia Sanctions EU Exit Amendment No. 5 Regulations 2023, that's SI No. 1367, will come into force on the 1st of January 2024. These regulations make insertions to the 2019 regulations and concern the prohibition on the import, acquisition, supply or delivery of diamonds or diamond jewellery which originate or are located in Russia, or which are consigned from Russia 
it creates a new range of criminal offences in respect of those and in relation to the provisional financial services or brokering services in connection with the prohibitions under the regulations. On a side note to this story, the regulations which have been amended are now in such a state that because of all the amendments it's almost worth starting over again and producing a flushed, shiny and new set. They really are a mess. Just a thought. Also, Russia sanctions EU exit amendment number four regulations 2023 enter into force. Well, some of them came into force on the 15th, the rest come into force on Boxing Day, which is the 26th of December 2023, for those who don't know. These impose new trade restrictions on, amongst other things, the export, supply and delivery and making available to or for use in Russia of additional categories of goods with a potential for military and industrial application. The link to the regulations can be found in the podcast description. Secondly, and finally on sanctions from the UK, Ofsi has made updates to correspondent banking restrictions and published a blog post on it, and it's also updated its general, Russian and enforcement and penalties guidance, all of which can be found in the podcast description. It's almost as if every government in the world is trying to get all of this stuff on sanctions out of the way before the Christmas break. Anyway, that's it for this week's mammoth sanctions news. Now we move to fraud news, which is equally weighty. There's a mass of it. It starts in the US. In fact, for a country which contributes its fair share of fraud stories to this podcast, even the US has outdone itself this week. In fact, I had to drop quite a few dead donkeys among these. The first is a reminder of something is too good to be true. It probably is. Three individuals have been indicted for an investment fraud. Quotes the defendants are alleged to have engaged in a large-scale investment fraud scheme targeting individuals in the Mexican-American community, whereby the defendants and their co-conspirators fraudulently solicited investments from a multitude of schemes, such as concert series and cryptocurrency-related projects. Through marketing seminars, radio advertisements, and in-person meetings, the defendants fraudulently represented that these investment opportunities would yield significant returns relative to market standards. However, the defendants are alleged to have transferred the victim investor funds to other businesses and personal accounts, taken commissions and cash withdrawals, and 95% at least of the funds were taken from them. In all, the defendants are alleged to have fraudulently taken around $9.5 million from at least 100 victim investors. The next allegation is fraud related to wine investments. Quotes, the defendants claimed to investors that Bordeaux Sellers, the company at the centre of the allegations, brokered loans between investors and high net worth wine collectors that could be fully collateralised by high-end or high-value collections of wine. The defendants promised that investors would receive regular interest payments from the borrowers and that Bordeaux sellers would keep custody of the wine securing the loans while the loans were outstanding. As alleged, these representations were lies. Quotes, the high net worth wine collectors did not actually exist and Bordeaux sellers did not maintain custody of the wine purportedly securing the loans. Instead, the defendants used incoming loan proceeds to make fraudulent interest payments to investors and for their own personal expenses. The next story is an allegation of fraud made by, uh, to investors by Laura 
Tyler Perriman, the CEO and co-founder of Stimwave Technologies Incorporated, a medical tech startup. It's alleged that during fundraising in 2018 and 2019, Perriman made material representations which induced investors to part with $41 million. Now to a case of elder fraud, where individuals are alleged to have stolen more than $2.8 million from the elderly and vulnerable across the US, where co-conspirators, quotes, contacted the victims and falsely told them that they'd won a million or multi-million dollar sweepstake, but had to say pay rather certain taxes and fees before they could claim their prize. The claims were often reinforced with forged documents purporting to describe the sweepstakes winnings and required taxes and fees, some of which bore government seals. Now, before the final couple of stories, the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice has announced further action this week under its Consumer Protection Branch, quotes, designed to halt networks of fraudsters that use misrepresentations or unauthorized charges to steal money from consumers' financial accounts. Fraudsters and their accomplices often hide these unauthorized charges using so-called microtransactions or microdebits, which group the unauthorized charges with a large number of low-value straw transactions to lower the fraudster's chargeback rate. A chargeback is a transaction that is refused or reversed by an account holder's bank. Because a high chargeback rate can lead to account scrutiny or closure, using microtransactions artificially to reduce the chargeback rate masks the underlying fraud scheme. The final three fraud stories end the year seemingly where it started with charges alleging COVID-19 fraud. First, the alleged fraudulent obtaining of almost half a million dollars through the Small Business Administration's Payroll Protection Program and Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. The alleged perpetrator, quote, submitted false information and documents fraudulently to obtain COVID-19 related loans. In his applications, the accused allegedly claimed to be the owner and operator of multiple businesses with dozens of employees and millions in revenue and payroll expenses. The charges allege the businesses were fictional. The second case is alleged to involve more than $2 million in COVID-19 relief money guaranteed by the U.S. Small Business Administration through the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program under the COVID or Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act, which subsequently laundered those funds allegedly fraudulently obtained. Thirdly, and finally, I told you that the US so many cases of fraud. Thirdly, a lawyer has been convicted of pandemic relief fraud. Shalitha Robertson obtained more than $7 million from the Paycheck Protection Program by inflating the number of employees and the scale of the monthly payroll at the business which she owned. Links to all of these press releases can be found in the podcast description. Now, ah, to the UK, which has its fair share of fraud news as well. First, as a reminder that COVID-19 fraud is not confined to the US, the Insolvency Service in the UK has announced the sentencing of two individuals for £30,000 worth of fraud on the bounce-back loan scheme. Both men were sentenced to terms of imprisonment, in each case suspended for a period of 18 months. 
Sticking with the insolvency service, it has published its annual report and accounts for 2022-23. Inevitably, a significant portion of the report concerns COVID-19 fraud. In fact, almost all of the cases that I bring you from the UK concerning COVID-19 fraud are usually drawn from the insolvency service. The report provides, in this regards, and this is a quote, a key area of focus for our work throughout the year has been misconduct in relation to COVID-19 financial support, accounting for nearly half of all directed disqualifications outcomes and 40% of all bankruptcy restrictions. Where possible, we've also taken steps to recover funds lost to the taxpayer because of this type of misconduct, with over £835,000 worth of claims made against, quotes, disqualified directors so far, and many more cases in the pipeline, so I expect a great tranche of them next year. In terms of the data, quotes, there have been 459 disqualification outcomes, 101 bankruptcy restrictions, and six criminal prosecutions relating to COVID-19 financial support scheme misconduct. Indeed, COVID-19 support scheme abuse can be identified as a primary reason for the increased periods of disqualification and bankruptcy restrictions which have been identified by the Insolvency Service. The link to that story from the Insolvency Service relating to the Bounce Back Loan Scheme fraud and the annual report can be found in the podcast description. The final story on fraud from the UK this week is specifically from England and Wales, actually. It's a decision of the Court of Criminal Appeal in England and Wales, Amy's and Rex, or the Serious Fraud Office, concerning Section 4 of the Fraud Act 2006. Now, this is an offence of fraud by abuse of position, whereby a person commits an offence where they occupy a position in which they're expected to safeguard or not to act against the financial interests of another person, but they dishonestly abuse that position, this is the important bit, and intend either to make a gain for himself or another, and that's section 4C1, or to cause loss to another or to expose another to a risk of loss, and that's section 4C2 of the statute. Now, the reason I highlight that is that they were the provisions which were under discussion on the appeal. They were the certified question. In the appeal, these are direct quotes. The appellant's position is that subsections 41C1 and 41C2 each constitutes a separate legal ingredient of the offence. Where more than one intent is alleged, the jury must be directed that they need to be unanimous on at least one intention before finding the defendant guilty. Now, that's a so-called Brown direction after a, a 1984 case, R and Brown. It said that in failing to give such a direction, the judge materially misdirected the jury. The respondent's position is that a defendant's intention for the purpose of Section 41C is properly to be regarded as a single overarching ingredient of a Section 4 offence. Subsections 41C1 and 41C2 set out the different ways in which the essential element of intent is made out. There was no misdirection for the, by the judge. The case, like so many of these cases that go to the appeal courts, concerns the issue of statutory interpretation, and we really do need to take a more modern approach to statutory interpretation, particularly in law schools in England and Wales, and certainly uh, I do, and I look at the modern approaches to statutory interpretation and all of that golden and literal rule nonsense is confined to the history books. Anyway, 
So this was essentially a case of statutory interpretation. And in approaching the statute using modern principles, they found, that is the Court of Appeal found for the respondent, serious fraud office. The court stated, we consider that both as a matter of structure and language, it's clear that there are only three essential ingredients of the offence in Section 4. Section 41A occupies a position in which he's expected to safeguard or not act against the financial interests of another person. Section 41B dishonestly abuses his position. And Section 41C intends by means of the abuse of that position, one, to make a gain for himself or another, or two, to cause loss to another or to expose another to a risk of loss. Neither the use of the word or internally in each of one or two, nor the use of the word or externally between one and two, supports the argument that each is an alternative and independent ingredient of the offence. In the statutory context, the word or is more often used in a manner which includes and, and they rely upon for that the leading work on statutory interpretation, which is Benyon, Bailey and Norbury. The better interpretation here is that the word or at the end of subsection 41c1 and within each of 1 and 2 is used in an inclusive rather than exclusive sense. Anyway, the link to the case is in the podcast description. The final fraud story this week from the UK is from the Payment Systems Regulator, which has published its final reimbursement details in relation to authorised push payments, or app fraud. The new scheme, which comes into force from the 7th of October 2024, will see a significant shift in the reimbursement of victims of APP fraud, or app fraud. The link to the final details can be found in the podcast description. Now, Ah, the final two stories this week, the final two fraud stories this week, concern first a publication from the Council of Europe on the subject of education fraud. In order to ensure integrity and transparency in education, the Council recommends a common European approach be adopted, making six principal recommendations. The recommendations for member states of the Council of Europe are first, to promote high-quality education by eliminating education fraud, Secondly, to protect pupils, students, researchers and staff at all levels of education from organisations and individuals engaged in selling and advertising fraudulent services. Thirdly, to provide support for the implementation of preventative and protective measures, as well as a culture of equality of opportunity at all levels and in all sectors of education and training and in the transition between these sectors. Fourthly, to monitor technological developments that could support new forms of fraud. Fifthly, to facilitate international cooperation in this field. And sixthly, and finally, to support wide dissemination of the recommendation. A link to the press release and to the publication itself can be found in the podcast description. And finally, on fraud this week, a bit of a mammoth pop- uh, publication from Europol which has published its Internet Organised Crime Threat Assessment on Online Fraud Schemes. The report's key findings are 1. Online fraud schemes represent a major crime threat in the EU and beyond, as online fraudsters generate multiple billions in illicit profits every year, 
to the detriment of individuals, companies and public institutions. 2. Criminal networks involved in online fraud schemes are persistent and driven by opportunism. Their chain of crime is businesslike, facilitated by the growing presence of accessibility, uh, accessible enablers and the wide availability of crime as a service. 3. Fraudsters display sophisticated, sophisticated modi operandi, which are usually a combination of different types of fraud. Victims of fraud are often re-victimized within the same criminal scheme. 4. Social engineering techniques that fraudsters use have been growing in complexity. Criminals adapt these techniques according to the profile of the victim and the typology of fraud. Investment fraud, 5. Investment fraud and business email compromise fraud remain the most prolific online fraud schemes. Criminal networks involved in these schemes pose a high threat given their level of organisation and resilience. 6. Charity scams leveraging emergency situations have increased. This was visible during the COVID-19 pandemic, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Fraudsters show great versatility in modelling their narratives around current crises. I think we're at seven now. While physical skimming is an ever-diminishing threat in the EU, relay attacks targeting payment card chips, shimming as it's known, are increasingly being detected. Eight, logical attacks on ATMs still occur in the EU, with criminal networks testing ways to exploit new vulnerabilities at the ATMs they target. And nine, digital skimming is a persistent threat that results in the theft, resale and misuse of credit card data. A major evolution in digital skimming is the shift from the use of front-end malware to back-end malware, making it more difficult to detect. The link to that report is in the podcast description. Right, now to money laundering. Money laundering news started out the week a little bit thin, but it picked up towards the end. Good, interesting range of stories. We'll start in the US, where the US District Court for the Northern District of Illinois has approved an order against Binance and its founder CEO, Shangpeng Zhao. Binance will pay $2.7 billion and Zhao $150 million to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. The link to the CFTC press release is in the podcast description. Another money laundering story from the US stems from the COVID-19 fraud and the laundering of the proceeds of unemployment benefits. Austin Martin Siampuizi, quotes, engaged in a scheme with his co-conspirators to purchase and subsequently cash hundreds of money orders that were funded with fraudulently obtained unemployment insurance benefits. These benefits were from fraudulent online claims submitted to the Washington Employment Security Department using the identities of identity theft victims. Siampuizi laundered money procured from claims, filed using stolen personally identifiable information of more than 50 individuals. Siampuizi also admitted to submitting fraudulent economic injury disaster loan and paycheck protection program loan applications for his businesses. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. I could have put that in the fraud section, but I thought, well, I'll put it in the money laundering section because at least it had some identifying features of what he did with the money once he committed the fraud. Anyway, and finally, on money laundering from the US, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, has issued its final rule on access to beneficial ownership information. 
There are a number of revisions. There are a number of revisions to the previous iteration. Link to the document is in the podcast description. The next story concerns the European Union. You may remember that last week we reported that the European Council and the Parliament had reached a provisional agreement on creating a new European authority for countering money laundering and the financing of terrorism, or AMLA, as it's been initialized. But the, lo- the location of AMLA has not yet been determined, despite a number of cities within the EU having put themselves forward as possible locations for it. Well, this week, the Council and Parliament have now agreed the procedure for the selection of the new seat of the authority. As the European Council press release provides, quote, Regarding the location of the authority, the Council and the Parliament have worked together to ensure a selection process that is transparent, fair and equitable to all candidates. The co-legislators agreed on the principle of organising joint public hearings to allow representatives of member state uh, states' candidacies to present their applications. The co-legislators will assess each application according to the selection criteria included in the call for applications, the information provided by candidates in their application forms, the Commission's assessments of those forms, as well as the outcome of the joint public hearings. The final decision on the location of AMLA's seat should be made by the co-legislators in an informal inter-institutional meeting at political level, where the Parliament's and the Council's representatives will vote together at the same time with the same number of votes attributed to each co-legislator. The location of the seat resulting from the process will be included in the AMLA regulation and formally adopted as part of the text. Nine member states submitted applications to host AMLA. Belgium in Brussels, Germany in Frankfurt, Ireland in Dublin, Spain in Madrid, France in Paris, Italy in Rome, Latvia in Riga, Lithuania in Vilnius, and Austria was proposing to host it in Vienna. The Commission was tasked to assess the eligibility of the candidacies. The release of the assessment is, is expected for January 2024. The next step is to proceed to selection. I can barely contain my excitement for January. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, to this week's bribery and corruption news before a bit of general news and then we'll end with a bit of cyber. We start the bribery and anti-corruption news in the US where the Congress has passed the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act making it a federal crime for any foreign government official to demand or receive a bribe from a US citizen, resident or company in return for performance of a legitimate function improperly. There's a nice summary of the principal elements of the statute published by law firm Wilma Hale, so I have linked that in the podcast description. In Europe, two stories concerning bankers. First, a former official of the European Central Bank, Ilmaz Rimseviks, has been convicted by a Latvian court for taking bribes. Rimseviks is said to have taken payments as well as a trip to Russia, which was paid for by what is now a Russian bank, a defunct Russian bank, Trasta Komarbanka. No word on sentencing, which I suspect will be in the new year, but Rimseviks might expect up to six years inside. The second banker story is from the UK, where, where Adetunji Fadahushi Jones, a former director of corporate banking at First Bank of Nigeria, UK, has been charged 
with a bribery offence contrary to Section 2 of the Bribery Act 2010, which is commonly known as the Passive Bribery Offence. This is following an investigation by the National Crime Agency. Farahunsi Jones led the bank's relationship with a businessman prominent in the Nigerian petrochemicals industry. The allegation is that he accepted money and a vehicle in exchange for turning a blind eye to the client's conduct. Link to the National Crime Agency press release is in the podcast description. No word yet on when the trial will take place, but some point next year, I'm guessing. And finally, on bribery and corruption news this week, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, International Anti-Corruption Conference, which was held in Atlanta, Georgia last week, heard evidence that the single most significant driver of corruption in sport is illegal betting, estimating that up to $1.7 trillion is wagered on illicit betting markets controlled by organised crime. James Porteous, who's research head of the Asian Racing Federation Council on Anti-Illegal Betting and Related Financial Crime, said that legislation to govern the problem was outdated and consequently unsuited to the modern forms of illegal gaming activity. Humaid Al-Amimi, coordinator of the anti-corruption unit of Interpol, explained that manipulation of sporting competitions, colloquially known as match-fixing, is a highly organised crime involving money laundering and other illegal activities and called for improved data sharing. link to the full press release is in the podcast description. Now, in the way that things always seem to tie beautifully together, this is not about betting, but... It is an issue on the question of integrity in sport, and it's the announcements by the International Tennis Integrity Agency, the ITIA, which has confirmed this week that four officials have been suspended from the sport for breaches of the Tennis Anti-Corruption Programme, the TACP. Three Lithuanians and an Austrian have all been sanctioned by the IATA in the form of a range of sanctions or suspensions and fines. Now... A bit of general money laundering news before a little money laundering news, a little bit of general financial crime news before we round up the frankly limited amount of cyber news this week. People must be getting bored. The other financial crime news starts with Interpol, which has announced the conclusion to a coordinated transnational police operation across 34 countries to combat financial crime online which has resulted in the arrest of 3,500 individuals and the seizure of 300 million US dollars. Quotes, the six-month operation HAECHI4, which ran from July to December 2023, targeted seven types of cyber-enabled scams, voice phishing, romance scams, online sextortion, investment fraud, money laundering associated with illegal online gambling, business email compromise fraud, and e-commerce fraud. Link to the full press release is in the podcast description. Three more stories before we end the last Financial Crime Weekly podcast of 2023 with a roundup of cybercrime news. The first one, the final one rather, is quite a big one actually. First, the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, or Austrac as it's known, has published a blog post of top tips for firms on completion of their 2023 compliance report. Link is in the podcast description. The other story is news that the reforms which were made to the identification principle brought into effect by the passing 
of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act 2023 come into force on Boxing Day, which, as I said earlier, is the 26th of December, for those of you who don't know. That's something exciting to drag you away from all the sporting activities which typically take place on Boxing Day. Thirdly, and this is the quite big story, hasn't got much attention, but it might do longer term. The High Court in England has ruled this week that the Serious Fraud Office, the SFO, may be liable in damages for bringing an action against Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation, ENRC, which was based, that action against ENRC, on recklessness and bad faith opportunism, as the judge said in the case, and that in the circumstances there was what the judge described as a sufficiently causal connection between the SFO's decision to investigate and losses which ENRC suffered from the probe. Now the link to the judgment in the case brought by ENRC is in the podcast description. It's an interesting one this. As I said it's just come out and it's come out at a really bad time just before the Christmas break so not a lot might be made of this yet but I suspect longer term there will be a decent amount of interest particularly if this case were to proceed. But anyway, we'll leave it there and see if anything comes of it in 2024. Now, to cyber news this week. The cyber news roundup starts with a look back at that cyber attack on Kyivstar, which is the largest mobile operator in Ukraine. The news is that it's now fully operational again following the attack last week, which disrupted its operations. I'd imagine that mood, uh, certainly news is welcome, particularly for those who rely on that kind of communication in the war-torn country. And the outage must have caused an acute sense of trauma, as well as the, the war itself. But news also reaches from that Kyivstar attack relating to British intelligence, which has labelled that attack the most high-impact, disruptive cyber event since the Russian invasion in 2022. So significant did it deem it to be. Uh, staying in the UK, the National Grid, the utilities company, has started removing components supplied by a Chinese-backed entity, Nari Technology. The removal is believed to be because of cybersecurity fears following advice taken from the National Cyber Security Centre. Nearly then, we're nearly done, folks. It's understood that the international law firm CMS has been hit by the Lockbit cyber attack, but that the impact has been restricted to its cyber operations. Not its cyber operations, I'm getting a bit, bit, bit giddy. It's Spanish operations. And finally this week, a cyber attack on fuel depots in Iran, which disrupted the distribution of fuel across 60% of the nation's network, has claimed has been claimed by hackers linked to Israel. The group Gonjesk Darande, Predatory Sparrow, for those who don't know, like me, claimed responsibility earlier this week, and the attack was confirmed by the oil minister for Iran, Javad Auji. Wow, that was mammoth. That's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and you'll hear from me again, all being well, in 2024. 14th of January to be precise, with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a genuinely great break, everyone, and have a genuinely restful and peaceful time. And I'll see you in the new year. Bye.